You're listening to the Book Talk Today podcast, a podcast that inspires readers to obtain valuable insights to inform, educate, and improve lives. My name is Orn Abdi. I'm an avid reader, best known for the creation of the One Minute Book Review community, and I'm sitting down with authors to delve deeper into the books they have written to uncover the story behind the story. Hello, Book Talk Today family, and welcome back to another episode of the Book Talk Today podcast. My name is Orn, I am your host, and in today's podcast, we are joined by David Robson. David is an award-winning science writer specializing in the extremes of the human body, brain, and behavior. And today we'll be discussing his most recent book, The Expectation Effect, How Your Mindset Can Transform Your Life, this book right here. And we had a great conversation about what the expectation effect is and how having a positive attitude can transform your life and your mindset. If you're someone who follows my content, I'm very much someone who likes to think positively and likes to be, uh, as Matt Bailey would say, a rational optimist towards my life. But in our conversation, we addressed, for instance, The Secret by Rhonda Byrne and some of the pseudoscience behind affirmations and thinking big per se. Um, And the expectation effect is perhaps a counter to that or somewhat reframing that idea in a more scientific way. So we had a great conversation about this and I can't wait to share it with you now. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the podcast. Every week we release a podcast with an author discuss their book and the ideas and principles inside of it. We've had some great authors on in the beginning of 2022 and we have some wonderful ones signed up for the next coming weeks. So please do subscribe whether you listen to this on YouTube, Apple or Spotify. Please do subscribe to the podcast. That is the best way that you can support it. Without further ado, here is the podcast with David. Enjoy. David, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. And I'm fascinated by the mind, the power of the mind. I've read many different books by different psychologists. It seems like every single week there's a new book on the power of the mind and how you can harness the power of the mind. And it was a great book, your your book, The Expectation Effect, and trying to understand how you can transform your life and, and your situation through the power of your mind. So before we get into some of the elements of the book, I think it'd be great just to talk about what interests you about the subject and some of the origins behind the book. Yeah, sure. I mean, so as a science writer, like I'd often come across the placebo effect in medicine, you know, it's kind of eternally fascinating to people that somehow your expectations of recovery can actually help you to get over an illness and can boost the effects of a drug. Um, But actually, like, um, it was a pure coincidence, but I really started thinking about this more carefully when um, I experienced an expectation effect for myself. Um, And this was a negative expectation effect, which we call a nocebo effect. And essentially, that's when your expectations of illness actually cause you to become sick. Um, And this came about because I had been suffering from depression and I was given some common antidepressants. And my doctor had told me that there was a good chance that those side effects, um, that the taking the pills could cause headaches and uh, migraines. Um, And so I actually took the pills and they, you know, um, were pretty effective at kind of relieving the uh, kind of dips in my mood. But I did experience really bad migraines. Um, But just by coincidence, I was also writing an article on the nocebo effect. And it was an amazing coincidence because actually, as I was researching that, I found out that 
a lot of the side effects for the pills I was taking could potentially be explained by expectation rather than the direct effects of the drugs. In some ways, the Mm. doctor's warnings were causing people to experience those headaches. And what I found was that um, I kind of read that paper in the morning, had my lunch, and by the afternoon, the pain had started to go away. And by the next day, it had gone away completely. Um, So that really showed me just how powerful the expectation effect could be. Uh, Because those headaches, they weren't imagined. They were actually very strong, very uncomfortable. They felt like any other headache I'd had. Um, And actually, when I looked into the research some more, I found out that, you know, they could even be traced to real physiological changes in the brain. So you saw, you know, changes in the brain's vasculature that are associated with any headaches. So the expectations were really changing the body and was causing the discomfort. And so that really showed to me just how powerful it could be. And then I looked, kind of started gathering studies, and I found that actually these kinds of expectation effects are affecting all areas of our lives. So our responses to exercise, diet, sleep, even how we age can be affected by our expectations. So did you get the benefits from from that medication, even though then with that that mindset that you had or that awareness that you had, you alleviated the the, the actual negative side effects. So you, you actually were not experiencing the the dip, as you said, but then you're still getting the benefit from it. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly it. So I, you know, I was experiencing the positive benefits of the the pills. So they really did help to relieve my depressive symptoms, but. I just didn't feel the kind of side effect of the headaches. So, you know, it was a win-win for me. That's one hell of a timing, isn't it? To, to be writing about that and be going through that at the same time. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, really fortunate, actually, because I think like the the pain from the headaches was so big that if I hadn't, you know, realised that it was an expectation effect and if I hadn't felt some relief from that pain, then I think I would have discontinued using the drugs, even though they did turn out to be very effective for me. Was was that then consistent in the literature then for individuals um, experiencing the negative side effects and doctors' warnings and uh, that attributing the correlation correlation between the two of them? Yeah, that's exactly it. So the scientific literature shows that um, you know in clinical trials you would have people taking uh, a placebo pills and people taking the real drug, and the the participants in these uh, clinical trials, they don't know which arm they're in. But what you you found in those trials is that actually for the side effects, that the number of people experiencing the headaches is equal in each arm of the trial, even when they're taking the placebo pills, when they're taking the dummy pills. So that is really strong evidence that it is caused by expectation and that it's not caused by the direct action of the pills themselves. Um, And that's actually where a lot of this evidence for nocebo effects comes from, is when you're looking at the clinical trials and comparing the data from each arm. I think for those who don't know the difference between the placebo and the nocebo, I think it'd be good just to sort of clarify what the differences are between those two. Yeah, sure. So the placebo effect is what we kind of... um, what has been kind of famous in medicine for hundreds of years, which is that when you have a positive expectation that you'll experience like a recovery, it's actually good for you. The nocebo effect is just the opposite. It's when you have a negative expectation that that will lead to illness. So they're kind of, the nocebo is almost the evil twin of the placebo. And amazingly, the nocebo effect has only just been really studied for the last few decades. It's not really, uh, it hasn't really been as well known as the placebo effect, but actually it's really potent and really important for our understanding of health and well-being as a whole. 
why was it started to, to being studied so much then over the past couple of years? Is it because of the detrimental impact that people were having because of this medicine? Or do you think it was the rise in awareness about people's mental health as well? Yeah, I think both of those things. I think like in a way, like the data was always there in the clinical trials, but people just hadn't really taken notice of it. And then like when they did actually start to look at this and to realise that a lot of the side effects that people are are experiencing are caused by ex um, bad expectations, then that actually, like, it's really obvious when you consider that, that the um, that so much of this kind of suffering is completely needless, that if you can eliminate the nocebo effect, you can actually just improve people's experiences in hospitals and from taking different treatments, you know, it can be really quite powerful. Just to give some more colour onto the actual expectation effect, how would you actually define it for, for someone who is trying to actually think about, you know, how to define expectations? Is it like personal expectations about what you have uh, within your own mind or is it expectations about what you actually want to achieve as well in, in sort of like the extra, um, extra personal world? So it can be all of these things, but I think um, I define it as the phenomenon where we create self-fulfilling prophecies from our beliefs and that they can become self-fulfilling prophecies through uh, changes to our behavior, changes to our perception, but also changes to our physiology. And so that's where the placebo and nocebo effects come in because they show very strongly that our beliefs can actually change our physiology, how our body responds to events. Is, does that go back to the, like the perceptive mind? Like we perceive the world the way that we want to see it, what the way that we want to see it, rather than how it actually is. Yeah, exactly. So, um, uh, scientists, it's really quite a big trend now in neuroscience that scientists see um, the brain as this kind of prediction machine. So it's always kind of uh, preempting what's going to happen in the future. Um, and even like with its current perception, it's often using its experiences and expectations to make sense of the sensory data that's hitting the eyes and the ears and the body. Um, so, you know, this this can actually um, cause us to experience uh, all kinds of visual illusions occasionally, you know, when people start to see like, um, I don't know, like uh, Jesus in a slice of toast. That's just a sign of like an expectation effect in our perception. It's because someone has this kind of expectation that they might see a religious sign. And then that causes the brain to kind of reshape the data hitting the eyes in such a way that it, it interprets it as having some kind of meaning there. I know in the in the book as well, you gave the example, I think in like, I think it was 2019 when the uh, Notre Dame Cathedral, I think it was in Paris, got burnt down. A lot of the people saw Jesus in the flames. Was that, was, wasn't that correct? Yeah, exactly. That's a classic example. Um, I also describe how, um, you know, like Gatwick Airport in the UK had to be closed because um, uh, people started seeing drones in like December 2018, I think it was. Um and it's really quite remarkable because actually like the police and, you know, like uh, the military were doing all of these radar scans trying to find the <laughs> any signs of like an unidentified flying object that they could um, that could be the cause of all these sightings and just nothing appeared like there wasn't any physical object. And so what seems to have happened is that one person maybe mistook, I don't know, like a bird or some other kind of, you know, maybe a plane itself as being a drone Um and then, like, once they had announced that, lots more people had the expectation that they would uh, start to see drones. And then it came to, I can't remember how many sightings there were, I think, you know, nearly 100 sightings of drones. 
um, apparently just through this kind of contagious expectation effect that had shaped people's perceptions that they were seeing something that wasn't there. And they never actually found any drones. No, they never found any drones and there were no photos of the drones. And like I said, like no evidence from any of the kind of military equipment that there had been a drone. So, you know, we can't rule out the possibility that maybe the first sighting was real, but quickly that drone disappeared. No one else had, um, uh, no one else seems to have actually seen a drone. It was purely an expectation effect. Is that purely an expectation effect or is that something that's not a limitation of the human brain? Because the way that I see it sometimes is like, for instance, we expect things to happen um, or, for instance, we see things because, you know, we have such a a narrow focus when it comes to things that we want to see. But when we open that up and the possibilities become endless, I don't know whether our brain plays a trick on us and it says, oh, you know, the possibilities are endless now and we just see things as if we're hallucinating. So I don't know whether it's like an expectation effect or whether it's something like biologically ingrained within each one of us. Mm, So I would say um, it's funny that you kind of talk about hallucinations because actually the neuroscientists who study um, our perception and who see the brain as a prediction machine they do actually say that um, perception is this kind of controlled hallucination. And what they mean by that is that actually uh, the brain is creating kind of simulations of the world based on our predictions of what's most likely to be out there, given the context. And it's then updating those simulations with the data in front of us, with the actual sensory information. But we're not seeing the sensory information directly. We're seeing the simulation. So in that sense, the simulation is our world. We are living in a controlled hallucination. Um, now, whether, So I think this is absolutely hardwired. And, um, you know, I think other animals probably also work through this kind of predictive processing. Um, and it's really beneficial. It can actually improve um, the efficiency of the brain's processing because you're not having to kind of read each um, piece of data individually. You're actually, it's much quicker for it to kind of just uh, kind of tweak the simulations rather than create everything from scratch each time. So that's like beneficial in its own right. Um, Also just a load of data that we receive, like in lots of situations, the sensory information is just quite ambiguous. And so the simulations really just help us to make sense of that, you know. So so actually I think this is the best way the brain could possibly work. Um, And actually it works well in the vast majority of cases, you know, like um, basically our simulations do reflect real life pretty well enough for us to function really well day to day but there are just these kind of small examples like rare examples where it's actually um you know leading us astray and leading us to see something that just isn't there and there's actually some good examples in the literature scientific experiments that show that in the right conditions this can happen quite frequently so in one one study um researchers just played their participants um Uh, just pure white noise, you know, nothing meaningful in that signal at all. But they primed them to think that they might hear uh, Bing Crosby singing White Christmas. Um, Amazingly, then 30% of the participants actually reported hearing Bing Crosby. And then when you look at the brain scans, you actually see that these, you know, hallucinations actually really very much look like actual sensory perception, you know, like it's almost impossible to distinguish the brain activity when someone's imagining that they're hearing Bing Crosby from when they're actually hearing Bing Crosby. So it seems like a real phenomenon, you know, it's not just people kind of being polite when they answer the question, they're actually having the sensory or the the kind of experience, the lived experience of, of you know, seeing or hearing that illusion.
So is it individuals sort of prompting? The prompt is as powerful in this situation as someone actually hearing it or doing it. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, you know, that again, it's like because the, say when you're kind of hearing white noise, it's just, it's so ambiguous what you're hearing that it's actually then much easier to kind of prompt people to kind of experience that kind of hallucination through that expectation effect. Um, It would be much harder, say, if, you were like on a, it was a beautiful, sunny, bright day, everything's crystal clear. And then you're telling someone that there's a huge cow in front of them. Like that's not going to work because the brain is reading the sensory information. So you have to have some kind of ambiguity. And I think we saw that with the Gatwick drones in that the sky was probably, you know, it's a dull winter day, like the kind of grayness of the clouds was probably quite ambiguous. And that just much like the white noise, it just became much easier for, for an expectation effect to change perception. So the conditions surrounding an event or something happens determines the level to which an expectation effect can have its effect? Yeah, sure. So context is always really important. So one thing I thought about with that Gatwick example as well was like the validity of police reports then. Because if, for instance, individuals don't see things as they actually happen but are done through their own perception and that perception for instance is their own internal perception or trained perception whatever it might be it kind of does call into question perhaps like the validity of like a police report or a police sighting or whatever it might be because who knows to suggest that that actually happened yeah no i think that's totally true like um you know especially i think like in lots of conditions like if you think you've overheard someone saying something um you know, you may well have heard it correctly, but actually we all know how easy it is to mishear something. And so the meaning can be like radically different. Um, We know that kind of expectation effect happens in language processing. Um, But, you know, for a police report, if they have an eyewitness who says they heard that, and they will be really confident that they heard this kind of incriminating conversation, um, you know, we have to call that into question. I think you can... I think you, there are ways to kind of test whether it might be an expectation effect or not. So it's much more likely that, you know, you might mishear like the odd word rather than like a very detailed conversation with lots of pieces of information that can then be verified from other sources. So, yeah, I just think that we do always have to be careful to um, consider the fact that perception is always to some extent subjective and we shouldn't just take things at face value. Um, in some sense, uh, you know, we say that... Um, Uh, seeing is believing but sometimes believing is seeing and believing is hearing yeah you 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 mentioned that in the book I think I remember that sentence within the book you said that Um, it's very interesting one and I think that is also the sense with reframing because I think reframing has come into popularity at the moment especially with uh, cognitive behavioral therapy we've had an individual on and he uh, on, on an early episode where he talked about the relationship between stoicism and cognitive behavioral therapy And a key theme within that is reframing and how you can change the perception of how something happened just by changing how you feel about it. Yeah, that's totally true. And like, um, so that's very much part of the expectation effect. And I think it's really important um, to kind of consider that actually, when I'm talking about kind of cultivating more positive expectations, I'm not talking about kind of being delusional um but it's you know it's not just about self-deception and kind of telling yourself that everything's going to be fine it's actually much more specific and it's much more kind of objectively just looking at your expectations and questioning if they're kind of uh needlessly negative and just bringing them up to a point where they might be kind of neither positive 
or negative, but just kind of neutral. Um, I think one example of that, one one of my favourite examples that I've personally found most useful, concerns how we look at stress and anxiety. Um, so if you're just to give one example, if you consider kind of public speaking, uh, which was one of my fears. Um, in the past, I'd always looked at the anxiety that I was feeling as a sign that I was going to fa- uh, fail. It seemed that the more anxious I was, the worst I would perform. And so if I tried to suppress my anxiety and that didn't work properly, the feelings were still there. I actually saw that as even an even greater sign that kind of I was doomed for failure. Um, but what the research has shown is that actually you can educate people about how anxious feelings can sometimes be an adaptive response. Um, we evolved to feel anxiety uh, because actually those those feelings like the beating of the heart are positive. They're, the heart, when it's beating um, fast, is actually pumping more oxygenated blood to the brain. And similarly, um, the hormones that we associate with stress and anxiety, like cortisol, they can actually be very powerful at sharpening our thinking. So they, you know, um, at high levels, they might be fairly dangerous, but at lower levels, they're actually really useful to just make sure that you're kind of uh, on your guard, thinking on your feet, you know, really like paying attention. Mm. Um, And what the researchers found is that when they educate people about that interpretation of anxiety and just let people know that actually it's not all bad and they could be beneficial that actually that has a really strong effect on people's performance so you know they do better at public speaking they do better in these difficult exams you know especially things like maths where people feel a high level anxiety it actually helps them to boost their performance and what's even more important for me is that actually um it's not just the performance in the test itself or in the event itself, but it also helps to reduce the time it takes to recover afterwards. So you don't feel so kind of on edge for the rest of the day. You can actually just return to your normal activities feeling a lot calmer sooner. And that's really important for our long-term health because it's really like if you have a prolonged stress response that you're going to suffer some of the damage to your cardiovascular system, for example. Um, So it's really, really important. And there like again it's not about kind of fooling yourself into thinking something that isn't true it's just changing your interpretation of something that's happening is it the awareness alone or is there like a step-by-step process that someone can go through in order to to change that anxiety into something practical that they can use for instance in like the public speaking example yeah for me it was definitely kind of a step-by-step process um, and I think this is the same when applying all kinds of expectation effects is that you don't expect like miracles immediately, but you can kind of grow um, kind of incrementally. Um, so with the public speaking, it's like I read this research and then I tried to apply it for the first talk that I had to give in public. Um, and I didn't expect to just love it. or I didn't expect to be like amazingly charismatic the first time that I kind of applied this uh, method yeah. of reframing. I just thought, you know, maybe this will make me feel a bit more comfortable, make the whole thing a bit more pleasant. And that happened. And then like, I could build on that. So the next time I did it, I could remind myself of how it had been successful previously, and then just hope that maybe I might improve even more. What I found is that kind of event after event, I found my confidence increasing, I found that my, um, I, I could really start to feel that the anxiety actually wasn't this kind of wholly negative, debilitating thing, and that it was a slight discomfort, but it was also useful. Um, so I was kind of proving it to myself, really. And, you know, I think really, like, for me, the effect has been quite profound. So public speaking has gone from something that I just really hated to something that I now 
quite enjoy like i do find it quite energizing where is that line between sort of i know at the beginning of the book you talked about the pseudoscience of the secret um and i have my personal opinions about affirmations and the secret by Rhonda Byrne, and this idea of actually like changing your attitude and having more of a positive attitude so where is that fine line you know from from your own research and from the scientific literature between sort of being so overly positive but not actually focusing on perhaps just the step-by-step process of how to improve something yeah i mean i think that's a really important distinction um and it's something that i really have wanted to make clear like writing the book and then in the promotion of the book um like i absolutely don't advocate the kind of positive thinking of someone like Rhonda Byrne. um you know partly that's just because it's pseudoscience like it's not based on any good scientific studies whereas i'm I cite more than 450 peer-reviewed articles. Um, and, you know, like uh, what I'm trying to do is to show very um, very specific expectation effects for specific situations. So I'm not just saying like have this kind of optimistic view or kind of just imagine success and believe that it will come to you through a law of attraction. I'm actually saying like we have to reframe this situation in this particular way and that then this can have um, a certain effect through these very well-known physiological or behavioral mechanisms so it's all very precise I hope Um, and you know really I just think it's important also to recognize that actually if you have inflated expectations like way inflated expectations that's only going to lead to disappointment which may lead you to feel a lot worse in the long term so I'm absolutely not saying that we should kind of you know if you're trying to reframe your attitudes to exercise like it's pointless believing that you're going to become like Tom Daly after 10 weeks of workouts. Like, that's not going to happen. But what you can do is just form more realistic kind of goals and then shape your expectations. So if you you had felt like you were just not cut out for exercise, that you were genetically in, um, like indisposed to uh, kind of working out, you can just question mm. that particular assumption and tell yourself that actually, you know, the more you work out, the better you'll get, but it's going to be an incremental process and that you will, eventually you will see benefits and you'll see good benefits. They just might not be miraculous. I think one of the the, the lies that are, are being pervaded at the moment is the, the more you think big, the more the chance that it'll happen. And it's something that I particularly don't like. It's because, you know, it, it puts so much emphasis on actually like the goal that you want to achieve rather than the specific steps. Like, for instance, I know there's this book called The Magic of Thinking Big, and there's a couple of books that I've read that are just called like Thinking Big. And it's just this weird obsession with the, the bigger you think, the more likely it's going to happen, which uh, to me just seems like it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, exactly. Like, you can't just, I mean, that's just wishful thinking. That's not, I mean, yeah, that's not an expectation effect. That's not going to produce good, you know, realistic change. Um, expectations, um, when we're talking about the expectation effect, like we have to make sure that our expectations are realistic. Um, We just want to make sure that they are, you know, that they're achievable. And like when they're positive, like um, we just, yeah, um, to start again, like I think like we just want to make sure they're realistic. And I think so often actually our expectations are just needlessly negative. You know, when I was doing my public speaking, like I really needlessly thought that this anxiety was going to kind of be completely debilitating and that wasn't true so it's more about avoiding the catastrophic thinking and then just trying to kind of set realistic goals for yourself is that catastrophic thinking built into our dna it's like the first it's like our mo it's like our modus operandi it's like the first thing that we go to is that negative thinking 
Hmm. Yeah, no, I don't think it is actually, because I think you can escape it and, you know, our mindsets are really malleable. Um, and I think if it was just kind of um, hardwired, I don't think that would be so easy to do. So no, I've, I feel like maybe it's almost cultural. And I actually think there's a culture of pessimism where we kind of see being pessimistic and cynical as being inherently more rational. But actually, I don't think that's true. Like, um, And like you said, like there's people who kind of think that you just have to think big. There's other people who think you should always be like defensively pessimistic. And I'm just saying, we take the middle ground. Actually, that's the healthiest place to be. Yeah, what was that? There was a book that was uh, that I read a couple of years ago, um, Rational Optimist. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a very similar kind of concept here. Yeah, of rational optimism. But this is just, yeah, more about kind of how that will then change like your overall well-being. But yeah, the concept is there that you're just like, you're just trying to like uh, reframe things in a way that is uh, honest and objective, but you're just avoiding the needless pessimism. I think exercise is one of those things that's very interesting when it comes to this 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 idea of expectation effect because I come across so many people who message me and and say to me, look, I'm I I'm not built for exercise, you know, because sometimes I post stories of me going to the gym at like five thirty in the morning, and they just like, how do you do that? I can't do that, you know. No one in my family can ever do that, you know. That's impossible for me, and it's weird because I almost feel like people believe they're either you know Michael Phelps. You you mentioned Michael Phelps in the book. Or they're just like they're 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 just reduced to to doing no exercise at all. So, is is that one of the main sort of factors that you see in the expectation effect about this debilitating fear that people have towards certain activities? Yeah, absolutely. I think like um, I think you're right. It's like people just have this tendency to kind of see things in a very essentialist kind of manner. So it's like either I'm great or I'm terrible, rather than you might just be very average. Most people are very average, you know, nothing wrong with being average. And actually, like, say, with exercise, it's actually, you know, if you're just an average person, and then you manage to do more workouts, it doesn't matter if you never become an Olympian, like that is going to be really good for your mental and physical health and how you age. Um, so, you know, we should embrace sometimes being average without thinking if I'm average, I'm somehow terrible, like that's totally irrational. Um, and actually, then there's good studies showing that these kinds of mindsets do change how we respond to exercise. And so that was one of the most powerful findings that I had from the book. Um, so there was this you know, amazing study from Stanford University a couple of years ago that looked at um, kind of people's perceptions of their abilities at exercise and just the researchers um, gave them a genetic test um, before the experiment. And they, uh, it was a real genetic test that looked at a certain variant in the CREB1 gene. So some people um, have a kind of positive variant on that gene, of that gene, that you know, does make exercise just a little bit easier. Other people have a variant that's a bit kind of, uh, it's kind of a negative variant in that it can make the exercise a bit more uncomfortable. So you, your kind of core body temperature rises a bit more quickly. They tend to have lower endurance. But, you know, these are small effects. It's not like um, either you're great or either you're terrible. It's just like mm. one small factor. Um, anyway, the people did the genetic test, but they were given sham feedback. So they were told that they had the positive or negative variant, even if they didn't. Um, and then the, the researchers just gave them a kind of endurance workout to do. Um, and what they found was that actually 
the expectations mattered more than the genes in determining their endurance. And that was even reflected in kind of real objective measures of things like the gas exchange within the lungs. So those with the positive expectations of their fitness actually were more efficient at exchanging oxygen for carbon dioxide. Uh, Those with the negative expectations were less efficient, and then that made the exercise harder. Um, And I just find Mm. that amazing that actually our beliefs are more powerful than our genes in that particular case. Again, it's not going to you know, mean that you can just like think big and like, um, you know, win the 100 meters at the Olympics. But it does mean that if you go into the gym, kind of questioning some of those negative assumptions you might have had beforehand about your fitness, and just wonder whether actually you can perform a bit better than you did the last time you went to the gym, that that's got to be positive for how you feel during the workout and how you respond physiologically to that workout. It's interesting you said that because like recently I've been talking to my brother about it because both of us, both of us have started to go back to the, to, to weightlifting again, you know, during COVID all the gyms were closed and stuff and we were being very careful. And I was having a look at my workout programs before I went and I went back to the gym and I thought to myself, I could have gone a lot more, uh, put, put on a lot more weight on the weights that I had previously than, that, that I'm doing now. And it's weird because I don't feel like I was perhaps any stronger than I am now than I was in the past I was probably actually stronger in the past but it's weird how you say to yourself look I'm actually going to go easy to make sure I'm not going to injure myself and I'm not saying I like racked up some serious weight here it's nothing like powerlifting stuff but I, I had this feeling to myself it's like I don't think I was actually pushing myself to the limit that I could push myself at yeah I mean and that's again like the prediction machine like the brain when it's acting as a prediction machine is kind of often it veers on the side of caution, especially with things like exercise. So like the worst thing, you know, in our evolutionary history was that you push yourself too hard and you experience like total exhaustion that leads to a collapse and puts you in danger of like predators attacking you. So it's always kind of reining in your performance a bit just to make sure that you don't kind of use all of your biological resources. Mm. Um, But we know that those simulations that the brain is doing to kind of um, parcel out its resources can be shaped by expectations. So uh, there are loads of like placebos in sports that um, even a lot of like the performance enhancing drugs, actually, um, a lot of their benefits come from a placebo effect, not from the direct uh, results of the drugs. So, you know, we know that like those placebos are kind of changing the brain's predictions and then that's helping the brain to... um, Uh, to kind of uh, recruit more biological resources. Um, But we also know that these kinds of honest mindset effects are doing the same. Um, And one simple way to apply that actually is to kind of visualize an exercise uh, before you do it. Um, What the research shows is that that can actually help, say, the brain to recruit more muscle fibers. So even if, you know, your muscle size is exactly the same, but you're recruiting more fibers within that muscle so that you're stronger. Um, in one experiment, researchers asked uh, participants for like six whole weeks to not actually to do the exercise, just to imagine an exercise, like imagine lifting a heavy table. And they found that mm-hmm. over that six weeks, they actually increased their strength by 10%, which is, you know, quite significant considering they hadn't done any workouts. And it's a purely kind of psychological, uh, well, kind of a psychosomatic kind of result there. So yeah, like there's lots that we can do if you're a professional athlete, but also if you're just a kind of a regular guy at the gym, like you said, like there's a lot that we can do to use our mindsets to boost our performance. Is that the most applicable? Um, because like I, I like to think about the similarities between physical exercise and, and mental uh, endurance when it comes to actually learning something or learning something new. 
is that translated or does that mindset translate from someone who, for instance, wants to increase their deadlift by 20 percent, um, as well as to someone who wants to perhaps learn a language in three months? Is that same belief and that same mindset, does that translate? Yeah, I think it really does, actually. And, um, you know, I find it interesting that you mentioned kind of language learning, because uh, I think that in particular, like in England, I think we have a really negative mindset to learning languages. Like it's something that we, we do. assume. Yeah, it's just we assume that like it's really difficult. It's inherently difficult. We can't do it. Like it, the human brain isn't made to learn a second language. Um, but obviously, yeah. like other people in other countries do it pretty easily. You know, they know not just like one foreign language, but two or more. Um, bilingualism yeah. is mo more common than monolingualism globally. Um, so yeah. yeah, I think like the mindset there is having a real effect on like our language learning in the UK. But I think more generally, you're totally right. Like for any kind of mental task, cognitive task, like part of it is natural ability, but then our mindsets are also having, um, having a powerful effect on top of that. And so by changing your mindset, you might not become a genius, but you can definitely like make the most of the potential that you do have. One of the one of the the key themes that I took from your book as well is this idea of happiness. Uh, I know in the book you you dedicated a portion of the book to talking about like constantly following happiness is perhaps the worst thing that you can do, and I, I see this as being some of the flaws that I think a lot of people are chasing at the moment. It's like you can find happiness in I don't know social media, you can find happiness in a good TikTok video, you can find happiness in you know chasing success and money or a certain type of job, but it can be and, and it is shown to be the, the worst thing that you can possibly do for your mental well-being perhaps um, or your your idea of who you are as an individual so can you just talk about you know what the literature says about you know constantly following this idea of, of happiness yeah sure I mean I think this is another way that it's quite clear that expectation effects are different from just general positive thinking because um, the the results you know from numerous studies now showed that people who are really conscious of the happiness and pursuing happiness and have the goal of always increasing their happiness. They're actually less content in their life satisfaction and more vulnerable to problems like depression and anxiety, which seems kind of paradoxical. And, you know, superficially, you might think, well, doesn't that just kind of um, completely question the whole concept of the expectation effect? But again, it's about kind of specific expectations and kind of breaking that down. And I think you know, here really is again about that idea that our expectations have to be realistic. And the fact is, no matter what you do, you can never be happy 100% of the time. Or maybe you can, but that's like a matter of luck, like very few people can achieve that. There are always going to be challenges that you're going to face, that are going to leave you feeling disappointed or anxious or frustrated. Um, now, if you just value happiness, and you expect to be happy all of the time, you're actually going to view those negative emotions even more negatively. So you're not just seeing them as mm. a kind of discomfort, you're actually seeing it as kind of a source of shame, like there's something wrong with you, like, I've been doing all of this stuff to be happy, why, why am I now disappointed? Like, and then it's that stigma, that kind of mood shame, as I call it, that actually exacerbates your discomfort and your sadness. Um, and so the research shows that you know, that this is one of the core reasons why actually just relentlessly pursuing happiness actually leads us to be less happy. People who have a more accepting view of their negative emotions, or even better, people who can even see meaning in their negative emotions. So in much the same way that I saw that anxiety could be this kind of um, way of like, uh, kind of 
charging you a little bit of kind of adding some kind of energy to you you might see disappointment as just being essential for kind of learning you know you failed at something that's making you sad but it's also telling you something important about what you might be able to do in the future that you could pursue a different path and what we see is that people who see meaning in negative emotions without liking them or wallowing in them but just seeing some kind of meaning that they might be conveying that they're actually much healthier mentally so they're less likely to suffer from um, depression and anxiety, they just tend to get over their bad moods more quickly. And it even translates to their physical health. So they're just less likely to suffer from, you know, all kinds of diseases from diabetes to, you know, headaches to kind of just, you know, catching the common cold. Like it's actually just kind of um, by having that more realistic view of their emotions and by seeing meaning in their negative emotions is actually just helping them to be as healthy as they possibly could be in your research and on this on that point of meaning because i think it's a very interesting point of discussion like in your research did you find uh, any individuals who perhaps related their negative experiences um to perhaps you know like a, a supernatural power and having meaning to it did they find any benefit in doing so because i think like one of the things that i think religious people look to atheists and some of the things that they question is the fact that they must be so miserable and negative all the time because there's no meaning behind anything that they do but is there like a positive effect behind actually attributing some of the negative emotions in life towards that supernatural power yeah, I mean, I don't go into this in a lot of detail, but I do kind of look at how believing in some kind of greater being um, does seem to be beneficial in lots of ways. And it's like, um, uh, basically, like when I was talking about the prediction machine, like a lot of what it's doing is kind of calculating what resources we have at the moment and whether they're capable of kind of confronting the challenges that we're facing. And if you feel like you have enough resources to kind of deal with a challenge to cope, like you kind of you benefit in lots of ways so you have like a reduced stress response um or a healthier stress response um and you actually you you tend to kind of have more kind of self-control and you know you can stay sharp for longer um and what we see is that actually religious people you know feeling that you can call on like um like god to help you (laughs) that's an incredible feeling of having greater resources and so that is actually really beneficial then it's kind of like an expectation effect that comes from faith um so yeah i think like there are psychological benefits for from uh religious belief and some people think that that's why religious belief evolved in the first place because it's serving this kind of purpose to help us to deal with challenges um Mm. but you know i think like um if you're kind of an atheist if you're um you know, if you don't hold any of those beliefs in the paranormal, um, you know, you can still benefit from expectation effects like very well. And this understanding is just kind of um, emerging, but it's really like how we can like reap, reap all of that, um, all of those mechanisms that had evolved like deep in prehistory. One of the one of the things as well that was interesting that you talked about in the book is this effect of diet. So you, you compared the diet in France to the diet, I think, in the US. And you said, you know, even though if you were to look at them on paper, like the French diet would look a lot more unhealthy than the one in the US, which was like this diet diet, if that makes sense, like this ultra processed diet that didn't that didn't really look very tasty, but would be considered to be more healthy. But then you look at the French one, it's like butter croissants and pasta and all that type of stuff, all that healthy stuff but actually the individuals in france would consider their diet to be more healthy and actually it would have a better attitude towards that which i think was fascinating because 
you know we all like diet is one of those things that is like really controversial because like what is the best diet like the best diet to you isn't necessarily the best diet to me but our perception about our diet is probably more important than what our diet actually is yeah yeah exactly so that's the it's known as the french paradox and it's this idea that um you know french people should have higher levels of cholesterol from their diet so you know you'd think they would be at quite a high risk of um, heart disease later in life um and yet you know they have lower rates compared to countries like the us or the uk so it's a paradox there um there are lots of potential reasons for that and like you said one might be that actually the french diet uh, kind of involves um, fewer processed foods. But um, there's also the idea that the kind of um, antioxidants in wine were beneficial. Um, you know, French people might drink um, moderate amounts of wine with each meal and that the effects could add up over time. Um, so lots of factors. But another factor that seems to be really important is the kind of amount of anxiety that people feel around the foods that they're eating. Um, yeah. So in, in France, you know, um, like if you ask people in France, kind of what word do you associate with cake? Uh, they say celebration. Um, people in America are more likely to say guilt. Um, and the idea here is just that actually adding all of that anxiety about what we're eating, like that's a source of stress that then is going to affect the heart. Um, and, you know, this could be like clinically significant. So, yeah, I think like what the research on diet shows is that, you know, of course, we should try to eat as healthily as we possibly can. But we also do need to just accept that pleasure is also a really important ingredient in our diet. And we mustn't become so anxious that we actually um, kind of undo all of the good that we might have from uh, eating more healthily. I think thinking of things at, like cake as being evil or as like people like to think of guilty pleasures, it's a bit weird. Like I remember I was talking to my friend about like music and we were talking about like, what's your guilty pleasure when it comes to music? And I said to them, there is no such thing as a guilty pleasure. Like you just like the things that you like and you just have to integrate them as part of your being. It's like weird to think that, you know, eating a piece of cake is like, should make you anxious or whatever it is because it's just eating a piece of cake like it doesn't make you a worse person just by eating a piece of cake the gluten-free example you gave in the book was a great one as well to said that gluten people who thought they were gluten-free increased by like 250 percent as soon as gluten gluten-free became like this 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 really unhealthy thing or gluten became this unhealthy thing yeah i mean it's an incredible phenomenon there so you know, I'm absolutely not denying that, you know, lots of people do have kind of um, celiac disease, you know, like they actually do just have this kind of uh, allergic reaction to um, gluten or to other elements within their food. Um, but it certainly seems to be the case when people have um, performed these really controlled clinical trials, that a lot of the people who um, believe they have a gluten insensitivity, a uh, gluten sensitivity, sorry, um, that a lot of those people are experiencing a kind of nocebo effect like I mentioned at the start of the conversation so you know they think that by eating gluten they're going to become ill and then they do become ill they experience nausea they ex experience kind of bloats they might experience diarrhea as a result of those expectations and the researchers know that because sometimes they gave people foods that just didn't contain gluten but they told them they might contain gluten and what they found was that these people were still experiencing those symptoms um so that's just something that we really should consider. And I do think with like the media, the way it is, like these health scares really do help to uh, kind of um, propagate negative expectation effects like really widely and quite 
you know, quite rapidly. So like you mentioned, a 250% increase in allergies over a few years, that's incredible. And it's definitely something that we need to consider in the future. The education when it comes to to food or the the way that media portrays this type of stuff is so negative. Like for me, because I was reading your book and I thought to myself, so much of a so much of it is like positivity and thinking optimistically about the things that you can achieve yourself, but also your environment and what you ingest, but both food and media wise. But I think media and you're a writer, so you you must know about this. It's like new media must be we we all must be very careful about the type of media that we we take in because that must be having a very detrimental impact on the way that we see ourselves and also what we're able to achieve as well based on for instance going onto Instagram and I know you gave an example in the book of seeing you know fitness models or whatever it might be and that actually has a detrimental effect on someone rather than just acting as motivation yeah exactly so you know in that study like they showed people either like these uh, hashtag uh, fitspo posts like fitspiration uh, images or they showed them just like beautiful images from um, like travel websites um, and the participants who saw the fitspiration posts seemed to have like had this kind of negative comparison to the people that they were seeing so you know they saw someone with like amazing abs and that made them feel like they were even less fit than they had originally thought they were and then when they went into the gym you know, that became an expectation effect. So they actually found the exercise a lot harder because they had these low expectations of their own abilities. Um, And then, you know, what I find most interesting about that is that it also then just meant that they were less, they were less happy during the workout and less happy after the workout. So they weren't even getting the psychological benefits really of exercising or um, you know, it's really like uh, making the whole experience much less pleasant. Um, and I just think that's like so fascinating, actually, that even when we think we're motivating ourselves, that actually we have to be careful that by kind of trying to compete with other people, that we're not doing ourselves down and then actually reducing our own abilities as a result. Yeah, that comparison as a thief of joy one, uh, that quote to me always stands out at the moment because we're we're almost programmed to compete with other people, whether it be social media following, whether it be, you know, our our current career, whatever it might be, it just seems like everything is a is a comparison. But from 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 reading your book and from this conversation, it seems like the more that you compare yourself to other people, the worse that your perhaps expectation effect gets. Yeah, exactly. And <clears throat> You know, like the sad thing is that whatever you achieve, there's probably going to be someone who's achieved more. Um, so it's yeah. really detrimental. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, just unfortunate, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, like it's you're always going to be raising your standards, and like, um, and it's you know could be really detrimental. Um, and you know, so I just think like it's great to have like ambitions, but actually we shouldn't we should try to focus more on our personal trajectory. So it's like, have I improved compared to yesterday? Um, You know, like at the gym, like, you know, don't start looking at all the other people around you who are running twice as fast as you, but just think like, have I managed to run faster or longer than I did at my last visit to the gym? And, you know, just keep a focus on that, on your overall journey. And you might find that you're only making small changes and small improvements, but actually over like a period of time, those small improvements could up, can add up to something big. And you're just avoiding that negative social comparison that might be detrimental to your performance and to your overall mood. That that comparison, that negative comparison, um, is it 
perhaps biological because I, from my observation, I've seen that comparisons among females are worse than comparisons among males. So like, for instance, like a lot of my friends who are females, they find it a negative when they have a look at what other women are doing or other females are doing. But it feels like for men, it's more of a motivating factor than anything. Like, has have you found that to be the case or have you seen it in the research that women tend to have more of a detrimental effect than, than men do? Hmm, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's not my experience in that I think I often do kind of feel if I feel competitive with other guys, then it's less motivating and more kind of um, detrimental to me. So, but I think actually it might also just, it might be cultural. Like, I think that's definitely a possibility that we might just, it could just be our culture that says that, um, that kind of leads uh, women to feel kind of in greater competition, say for their appearance yeah. compared to men. Um, I do think there's yeah, a, a fascinating book by Will Store, um, The Status Game, that really looks at this. Yeah. And he says, actually, that sense of competition it's just it's kind of fundamental to all human beings and it's actually one of the great um kind of uh, it's it's like one of the things that really drives most of human behavior is the feeling that we want to kind of achieve a higher status than other people um i think it's probably very difficult to kind of escape that like he says you can't just leave the game like our whole life is a status game but i think that our ways when we can become conscious of when it's harming us and we can at least try to then kind of reframe that situation so we're not experiencing so many of the negative consequences yeah will came on the podcast last year to talk about the status game and his books are great i I love i love his books but the status game is very interesting because at the end of that podcast i said to him it's like how do we play the game like what is what is the way to navigate ourselves around the status game? And he gave some, he gave a really great point about the sense that, you know, you have to play multiple games, you know, I think what you find at the moment is there's a lot of individuals who just play one singular game, whether it be on, for instance, Twitter, or it might be, for instance, you know, how much money they make. And once you get sort of involved in just that one particular game, you can see yourself becoming manipulated by it and become deceptive. But if you play multiple games and you're willing to be average, as we said earlier, as long as you're, if you're average at five different games, then the chances of you manipulating others and becoming deceptive within that status game is, is a lot less. So yeah, that's a great book. So yeah, yeah. And actually, I I hadn't drawn that connection. But there is something similar that I discuss in, um, the expectation effect. And this is specifically kind of looking at how um, when in education, like a a lot of people kind of feel that, say, like in a school, like a teacher might have negative expectations of certain students, and then that kind of becomes contagious, and the student themselves uh, starts to feel kind of less capable, more anxious, and so that kind of reduces their performance. And one of the ways that you can overcome that is this process of self-affirmation. Now, like, personally, I kind of hate the name because it sounds, like you said, like this kind of, um, you know, new age kind of wanky kind of, you know, um, kind of manifesting kind of behavior. But no, it's not. It's like really... Standing standing in front of the mirror and just convincing yourself that you're enough. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, like, um, but it's not like that at all. And there's actually like a huge evidence base. And you know, what this this process is, is actually you just get people to kind of, you know, like to list like 10 values or 10 qualities that really matter to them that are kind of unconnected to the challenge at hand. So, you know, if a, a kid is worried about their academic achievement, well, you might ask them like, what else matters to you in your life? Like, um, you know, is it music? Is it kind of creativity, like art? Is it humor? You know, those things. And then just get them to kind of really think about like, 
you know, a broader kind of picture of their personality and what they're contributing. Um, and in a way, that's just getting them to realize that actually they're kind of playing multiple status games. Like you mentioned, you know, like there's more to them than this one particular challenge. And, and what happens there is that actually reduces their anxiety. And then because it's kind of made them feel better and more capable, that actually then increases their performance. Um, and so I think that's really powerful. And it's totally different from, like you said, standing in the mirror and telling yourself that you're you're great or like imagining that you're suddenly going to ace this exam. Um, it's actually just helping you to realize that, you know, you're multifaceted and that actually that in itself can lead you to feel like you have more resources at your disposal. And then that helps you to perform better. Yeah, it's that counterintuitive thing, uh, like we discussed earlier about, you know, being willing to be average is actually a beneficial thing, because you can't be great at everything. And I think sometimes we're told by, you know, motivational speakers, or even authors in the self development genre, that you could be great at everything that you do. And obviously, that's a lie that you obviously you just can't be great at everything you do. But being average means that you can devote resources towards the things you actually want to be great at, you know, just you know, just because you work out doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be Michael Phelps or Elliot Kipchoge and, and run the marathon in just over two hours, which is absolutely ludicrous when you think about it. Uh, it is, isn't it? It's crazy. Eh? When when I saw him run that one in, in Berlin, it was Berlin, didn't he, when he, he ran that one in just under two hours, I think it was. And it's just absolutely ludicrous. Um, but I think I think having that expectation and setting that expectation to be happy with being average is it sounds really weird saying because you don't want to be the person who says someone to be average but i actually think it's possibly the cure mm. yeah no i totally agree and like you said like it's it's also just being kind of realistic about kind of where you focus your kind of resources and like you know how you build your expectations you know if you're better at one thing than another then you know like it's rational that you might kind of put a bit more effort into that particular skill but i think more more than that it's like just because you're average at something doesn't mean that you can't get like a huge amount of pleasure from that thing um you know like you said with sport it's like actually like you don't need to be an olympic athlete for you to really enjoy sport and for it to be really good for your long-term health so just kind of accepting that is really powerful um you know that's the attitude that I take like I just really try at the gym like you know I, I like seeing kind of these incremental improvements and I like thinking I'm getting better over time but I'm also just conscious that just going to the gym and just exercises itself do me good like no matter how well I perform on any particular day it's better than not having gone at all and I think you can see that yeah. with so many other things you know like for music, it's like, I don't know, like people kind of think that if they're not going to kind of um, join a band and become famous or if they're not going to, you know, um, uh, be Compose like a concert. A symphony. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then what's the point? But actually, there's a huge amount of point. And in the past, I think people saw music much more as just this thing that we created for pleasure. And now I think it's become yeah. so that you only do it if you think you can be the best, which is ridiculous. Yeah, that, that was something that I, I struggled with as well, you know, playing the guitar and playing, you know, piano and stuff growing up. It's you almost stop playing it because you're like, there's no commercial benefit in it, which is ludicrous when you think about it. It's like, well, am I doing this because I want to sell a CD or am I doing this for a career? It's like, no, I just do it because I enjoy doing it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like um, there's like lots of research showing that actually just having varied interests is itself benefit beneficial not just for your like well-being but actually you know it can do things like enhance creativity like there's that statistic about um 
Nobel Prize winners are much more likely to have had like other kind of creative interests, you know, like they're much more likely than the average person to have played an instrument or kind of been a painter. Um, now they, you know, they weren't world class at those other hobbies, but they just had them. And then the idea is that they can kind of cross pollinate. So what you learn when you're playing music, like actually might help you in your scientific inquiries. Or, you know, if you write novels, that's kind of creating this kind of uh mindset potentially or you know helping you to kind of see kind of structures or to think in a certain way that could then help like uh i don't know like um your kind of um economic research you know we we can't predict what those will be and that shouldn't be the main reason for doing them but actually like yeah it's really good to just have varied interests and to remain curious i think the age thing is interesting as well like towards the end of the book you sort of talk touched upon the fact that age doesn't really play a major factor and you gave great examples of individuals who won like writing prizes and and novel prizes you know after the age of like 80 you know they never had written a book before like the age of 65 but then they're winning like prizes and then you get the the, the example of someone who had run a a marathon or an ultra marathon or something at the age of 90 which is which is amazing so i think it's it's also the fact that age doesn't particularly matter in in that respect as well does it Oh, exactly. Yeah. So Penelope Fitzgerald, you know, started writing at about 60, then won the Pulitzer Prize. You know, her last novel is considered to be like an absolute uh, masterpiece, even though she wrote it in her 80s. Um, and that's Crazy. complete. Yeah, it's amazing. But also, and it's totally, um, you know, runs totally counter to this narrative that like creativity is something for young people and you become less creative as you age. Um, but we just have so many ageist beliefs in our society. Um, you know, like, when old people are depicted on TV or in film or um, in adverts, you know, they're shown as being kind of bumbling, you know, confused kind of beings who are weak and vulnerable. Um, now, that's obviously um, kind of really demotivating. So, you know, people are less likely to try new skills because they just assume they can't learn them and they can't achieve as much. But actually what the research has shown is that when we have these like overly negative views of ageing, when we only see the bad sides and only associate it with decline and disability, that actually those people live um, far, far fewer years than the people who have a more positive view, who see ageing as being, a, a, you know, a, about a kind of increase in knowledge and wisdom. And the difference is huge. It's 7.5 years. So like absolutely something wow. like yeah i mean like the researcher said at the time if we discovered like you know like a pathogen that was like <laughs> reducing lifespan yeah well yeah if we discovered any other thing like a virus that reduced people's life expectancy by seven and a half years like we'd be doing everything we could to fight it and yet ageism is just kind of accepted within our society it is accepted when i so i remember going away with my granddad we went to uh, Antwerp for like a weekend so I drove him there and we had a we just went out we just went there for a, like a mini break and we were watching the tv and they were doing the um the old uh, people olympics like the olympics where they they're like over the age of a certain age and you got people running the olympics like the 100 meters they're like 95 years old oh it's, it's amazing and you inter they interview them and they say you know I didn't really start running until I was 75 you think self that is absolutely crazy and it's all done by the fact that they just believe that they're younger than they actually are it just seems really a simple solution to something that's really complicated yeah exactly yeah like I spoke to Paddy Jones who's like this acrobatic salsa dancer and you know she's performed all over the world um she's in her 80s now but she started uh doing dance classes at like 
in her 60s. So, you know, um, long past the age that most people would have considered taking up a new hobby. Um, And she just says she doesn't really feel her age. And I just feel like she hasn't absorbed that idea that she should be limited because of her age. And, you know, she fully acknowledges that she has been lucky with her health. So, you know, some people are going to suffer from uh, kind of disabilities that are completely beyond their control. But I think the problem is when you assume that that is just inevitable and before you've even seen signs of that yourself you're already limiting your behaviors um and i I think here like the positive uh expectations you know they do encourage people to take on these new challenges that's really important but actually what we see is that there is also this physiological response and the basically the idea here is that if you feel vulnerable then all of the kind of small problems that you face are going to feel much more dangerous, much more threatening. So that increases levels of cortisol to a to an extent that might be uh, bad for your body, and it increases inflammation, which can cause wear and tear on your tissues. And what we see is that those effects actually can be linked right down then to the kind of what's going on in our cells, like the epigenetic markers that um, are associated with aging. So the scientists have really like traced every they've connected like the dots here from like the big longitudinal studies right down to the molecular biology. And so the link here seems really strong to me now. And, you know, it's something that we should be dealing with in the same way that we've dealt with things like diet in the past, you know, like we need to be tackling this problem. I think, I think there is definitely more awareness with like the the mental health um, sort of push at the moment uh, with more individuals being more open to talk about their struggles. I definitely think there is more, to be done but i definitely think this idea of having this expectation about what you can actually achieve and this growth mindset and i carol dweck talks about in her group in her book you know mindset about this growth mindset i think it's it's so important because we like to have these self-limiting aspects to to what we can achieve as individuals and if we can break those shackles i think that is a very positive thing not just for ourselves but i think also for society in general Yeah, I mean, that's what I really want with my book is to just help to kind of convey this message that actually it is about kind of what you can achieve as an individual and your kind of health and well-being as an individual. But actually, like, this is something that as a society we need to tackle as well, because it's really tough, I think, to, you know, you can try all you want to have like a positive attitude to ageing, but actually, like, it's really tiring to see you know, around you all the time, like people telling you that you're not as capable as you think you might be. And, you know, like it takes a lot to resist that. And so we just need to kind of change that messaging completely. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely think so. And I think that's the, the, the latter part of your book definitely speaks to that. And I think it's a, a definitely uh, an underlying thread uh, throughout your book. But uh, thank you so much, David, for coming on the podcast to discuss your book, uh, The Expectation Effect, How Your Mindset Can Transform Your Life. Um, where's the best place that individuals can find you, whether it be on uh, social media or a website? Yeah, so my website is www.davidrobson.me. Um I mostly, in terms of social media, I mostly use Twitter. So that's D underscore A underscore Robson. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, but yeah, either through my website or Twitter is the best way to contact me. Perfect. I'll put the links to both of those in the description below. So if anyone wants to follow you or, or send you a message, they can there. But uh, thank you so much for taking the time, David. Yeah, it's completely my pleasure. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Hopefully you found some great tools and techniques that you can use in order to implement the expectation effect into your life and transform your mindset by being more positive. But 
being so in a realistic manner, not using these pseudoscience affirmations as we talked about in the podcast, but tried and tested scientific techniques to improve your life and your mindset. So I definitely recommend checking out David's book, The Expectation Effect. I'll put the link in the description below so you can get that. If you have any questions or you want to go check out more of his work, I have linked below his website and his Twitter as well, so you can go follow him there. Just a reminder, if you haven't already, please do subscribe to the podcast. If you're listening to this on Apple and Spotify, the best way that you can support the channel is to subscribe on YouTube. That is the free way that you can support us and uh, the podcast to get the word out there more. So definitely head over to YouTube. If you're listening to this on YouTube already and you haven't subscribed to the channel, please do. Every week we release a podcast with an author to discuss the ideas and principles inside of the book. So definitely hit that subscribe button. And if you're listening to this on Apple or Spotify, definitely head over to our YouTube channel and subscribe. Thank you so much for checking out this podcast again, and I'm looking forward to seeing you in the next episode.